With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I want to understand what are the forces that influence me and how I can kind of cleanse myself of the negative ones. I'm influenced by the headlines, my neighbors, my peers, the people I work with, the people I have relationships with. I'm influenced by all these things that are just buffeting me all day long. How do I say, okay, that's their opinions, I'm gonna respect them and I might take them, but I have to develop my own. How do I cleanse myself? To me, the interesting question is, why do we feel the need to clear ourselves? So I've done a couple projects with Google recently where I have a, a number of neat products and services, uh, but they're really saying we've got great technology. How do we get it out there? So Google needed social media help. Not social media, really designing marketing strategy. Uh, and so, well, so, what did you do for them? What did, how, did, <laughs> how did it work out? Got Jonah Berger with me today. Jonah, how's it going? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Jonah, your first book, Contagious, about basically how things go viral and get contagious was was excellent. And now you you just released a book, Invisible Influence, which I really love the philosophy behind. The idea that often we make choices and we think we're making them out of our own preferences that we've built up over years and years of living. But in fact, everything from cultural impact, societal impact, teachers, friends, our neighbors, and so on, might be up to 95% of the reason behind some of our choices. And so you call the book Invisible Influence. And what I want to do is two things. My, my goal is two things. One is I want to get rid of these invisible influences so that I know that I'm making my choices for myself, or at least I understand why I'm making my choices. And B, I want to know if I want to influence people, like let's say I'm selling a product and I want to influence people, how can I take advantage of it? So I don't want to just I don't want to just bury myself in the academia of it. I want to really know how to, um, you know, distort and it. manipulate people. <laughs> <laughs> but I think your your first point is an interesting one, and, and I think this is how everybody feels. Influence is a bad thing. It's got it's not a four letter word, but it's close. Um, you know, none of us want to be influenced. We all want to see ourselves as sort of unique, special snowflakes, different from everybody else. Uh, but influence is often a helpful thing. Uh, you know, imagine if you had to pick, uh, I don't know, what restaurant to try or what movie to go see, and you couldn't ask anybody. You couldn't look around and read reviews. You just had to figure it out by yourself. Life would be a lot harder. No, it's very true. There, there's a certain like shortcut to influence, like. For instance, when I make an investment, I want to know that smarter people than me have made the investment for me because they did smarter due diligence. That's like the, and by investment, it could mean in a car, in a house, in a college, in yeah, a restaurant, a whatever. Yeah. And, and so I think while we think influence is bad, we think if we're not making the choice by ourselves, that's a bad thing. Sometimes others make, help us make better choices. Sometimes others help us make the same choice, but make it faster than we could have done by ourselves. And so I don't always think influence is bad. Even in American culture, we often see it that way. But, you know, a lot of times people think that they over... Well, well, two things, two comments on that. One is 
there's something a little deeper there too. It's not just influence, it's it's learning and, and knowledge acquisition. Yep. So if I see someone climbing a ladder, you refer to mirror neurons at one point. If I see someone climbing a ladder, I can learn how to climb a ladder without ever actually having to do that. So they in the in a in a similar way to how influence works, I can learn knowledge through watching someone who I believe to be more capable than me. Certainly, and that's I mean that's the power of mimicry. Uh, you know, it allows children to learn things from their parents and their caregivers that would be much more difficult to to learn otherwise. And so the same things that underlie the way we learn underlie us using others to help us make choices. So I don't think influence itself is bad. Uh, you know, and it's also not just one flavor. It's not just we do the same thing as others. Sometimes someone does something, we do the exact opposite. Uh, and so it's yeah. So that was questioning. I was questioning that in the book. Yeah, you'll you'll have a whole chapter. Here's how you do something to influence people but then the next chapter will be here's how do you do here's how you do something to get someone to do the opposite and they seem like similar things sometimes it was hard for me to tell sometimes when people are going to do the same as you and when people are going to do the opposite <laughs> as you so i wanted to kind of go over the differences there sure. but you know before i want to rewind a, a tiny bit um you did contagious you do this invisible influence yep clearly you're you're interested in how ideas uh, gets spread throughout society. And and particularly in terms of like contagious, the idea that, um, you know, some things go viral and other things don't, and it's sort of unpredictable. What got you interested in this initially? Like, where are you from? Why <laughs> why are you interested in this? Like, we're all kind of interested in this, but you sort of dug deep and 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 really explored it. Oh, well, thank you. And, and I think that statement you made, you know, it seems unpredictable. That's exactly what got me excited about this. You know, we we see Chobani yogurt at the grocery store. Greek yogurt has become popular. Kale has become popular. Certain and, music and, artists. And, and by the way, Greek yogurt being popular is like amazing because... You know, for 3,000 years, we had Plato and Socrates. Yeah. We hear nothing at all from the, the Greeks. Greeks. And suddenly we hear financial crisis <laughs> and, and Greek yogurt. <laughs> so it's so, yes, Greek yeah. yogurt becomes this amazing thing that for, 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 uh, breaks 3,000 years of Greek silence. Yeah. And now we have their yogurt and we yeah. all want it. And, and I think what's interesting about that is is sometimes we think it's unpredictable. It seems unpredictable. And so one thing in my research, I've been doing this now for over 15 years, I love trying to understand, can we predict some of this? Not perfectly, not 100%, but can we understand the social influences, the word of mouth uh, between people that shape what catches on and, and dies out? And originally I studied actually hard sciences. So math, science, computer science, uh, was programming in basic and used to have you know Pascal on my resume uh, back when that was popular a long time ago. Uh, and I got to college, I thought I was going to study environmental engineering. I got to college, I took a course. There was some uh, thing we read about like how we build buildings and how it affects people raising their children. If we build bigger buildings, people can't see their kids playing outside, so they keep them in the room so they don't meet as many other kids. And I was like, that's sort of interesting. Uh, what what course should I take to learn more about that? And they suggested social psychology. And that's what really got me interested in this space. And so in some sense, I see people puzzles, uh, you know, looking around, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we behave the way that we behave? But also not just as individuals, how does what you're doing affect what I'm doing, which affects what someone else is doing, and eventually leads big things to become popular or popular things to become unpopular. But let's say, look at this uh, video. I don't know if you've seen it recently. I have my my teenage daughters pointed out to me. Have you seen the damn Daniel videos? I have, I have not recently, but I've seen some of them. Yes, right. So, so it was just the stupidest videos possible, and yet it got like I don't know a billion views or whatever. Like, how did that become 
popular. Yeah. So you mentioned Contagious, my last book. That was all about the science of why people share. So we've done everything from, you know, look at six months of New York Times articles, uh, everything written by the newspaper from front page news to style to do textual analysis to understand what characteristics of content make it shared, uh, to look at tens of thousands of brands. And uh, there we talk about the steps. I put them in a framework for the book. And that stands for social currency, triggers, emotion, public, practical value, and stories. So tell, tell me what that means, social currency. Yeah. So social currency very simply is the idea that if something makes us look good, we're more likely to share it. So if we look special, if we look smart, if we look in the know, we're much more likely to pass that on than if it doesn't make us look good. But like the damn Daniel videos, how's that going to make me look smart? Well, so it may make you, if you're the first person to share it or one of the first people in your group to share it, it makes you look good. So Beyonce came out an album a couple years ago, no PR, no marketing, just dropped it on social media because she knew people would want to be the first one in their clique and their little group to be able to share it. I like that. Um, and so some, you know, just like knowing about the restaurant before everyone else, knowing about something on social media or the web before others makes you look special, makes you look different. Um, and so many things like that. Triggers is all about you know, what's how, top how of mind. How can I trigger somebody to think that they will build social currency by sharing my product? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, everything from scarcity and exclusivity. So, uh, you know, make something uh, less easy to get access to, uh, make it harder for people to get access to. I actually tell a great New York story uh, of the bar called Please Don't Tell. You may have been there yeah. uh, right down the road from of where course, we are. You have to go, <laughs> where you have to go on the phone, in yeah. the hot dog place, in the phone booth, and then turn, the door turns around. Yeah. And, and I remember hearing that story from my cousin, actually. And you think about why people talk about it. You look really smart. You look really cool to know yeah. about this. And so how can we make information actually a little more scarce? How can we make things a secret rather than doing a lot of advertising? Sometimes it actually makes people feel more special. Or, or how can we show that it's about them, not about us? Too often, when we're trying to sell an idea or sell a product or sell anything, even ourselves, we focus on us. Uh, and really, the more we focus on the audience and how they'll look from sharing something, the more likely they'll be to pass it on. So scarcity is kind of a Robert Cialdini uh, influence kind of concept. Yeah, exclusivity. So, uh, you know, it's uh, not a few number, but it's hard to get access to. Also talking about, you know, how we can find the inner remarkability in anything and, and show rather than tell uh, what's going on. So some great old videos where they stick like an iPhone in a blender uh, and they show what happens, show how powerful the blender is. It's a great video really engaging. It's uh, it's really funny to share it. But along the way, you learn that this company makes a really tough blender. And so it's not just sort of funny, engaging content. It's kind of a Trojan horse story that carries that message for the ride. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so social currency, what's the other <laughs> thing that makes something contagious? Uh, triggers is the T in the framework. Uh, and the and idea- I, I only want to spend t- time talking about contagious. A, because Everybody wants to create content that is contagious. Yeah. But B, it leads into in- invisible influence. It does in some ways, yes. Uh, and so T for triggers. Uh, so if I said peanut butter and, for example, you might say peanut jelly. butter and jelly, right? Or if I said rum and, you might think of Coke. Coke, right? <laughs> uh, and notice what, what like happened. Yeah, well, you you got professor. them both right. You did great. <laughs> Check plus. Um, but what you notice there is one thing can sometimes remind us of something else, right? So I didn't say jelly. There's no jelly around. But the mere fact that I said the word peanut butter and made you think of it. That's a trigger. Kind of a cue or a reminder in the environment that makes something top of mind. And because of that, it often makes it more likely to be tip uh, of tongue. So there's a great uh, video you've probably seen. Geico did this thing for Hump Day. I don't know if you've seen it with the camel. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, so they built a video around Hump Day. Wednesday is known as Hump Day. So they have a camel walking around an office going, what day is it today? What day is it? What day is it? Everybody ignores him. He's an annoying camel. Uh, he finds this poor woman. She goes, it's Hump Day. The camel goes, woo-woo. And the ad goes, you know, how happy are people who save money with Geico? Happier than a camel on Hump Day. 
this content is not that funny. It's sort of funny, not that funny. Yet it's the second most shared piece of content from, I don't know, last year or the year before. If you look at why, look at the data, it's really interesting. It's flat, and then there's a spike, and it goes back down. It's flat, another spike goes back down. You look closer, the spikes are every Wednesday. This content is equally good every day of the week, but Wednesday is almost like a peanut butter to their jelly, where Wednesday rolls around, it reminds you, it triggers you to think of this content, and you share it with others. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there the question is, well, how can we make sure we're linked to something in the environment, right? How, rather than just advertising, we're trying to get a message out there, can we make sure that every time someone sees a peanut butter, they think of us as the jelly? So this is similar to the concept of uh, what's called newsjacking. So, for instance, um, as we're recording this, Muhammad Ali recently passed away, um, people who, who are making con- I mean, it's quote unquote too soon, let's say, to be talking about this, but people who are making content related to Muhammad Ali, this is yep. getting shared quite a bit. Yes, and, and I think what you're saying there is in a newsjacking situation, that's the case where the habitat or the set of triggers for something is really big, right? We're going to link it something to one thing in the environment. The sad thing is when that thing goes away, so does our trigger. Mm. And so one question when we're picking those triggers is, well, what's something that's going to be around in the environment of the people that I'm trying to change their behavior that'll last long enough and be prevalent enough to make my stuff come to mind? So, okay, next thing, triggers. <laughs> uh, so we talked about triggers. Uh, so next is emotion. Uh, the idea there is when we care, we share. Uh, the more we care about something, uh, we're uh, emotionally connected to it, the more likely we are to pass it on. What's an example? Uh, great example. So uh, in New York Times, let's email this, for example. We see that stories that evoke more anger or more anxiety are more likely to be shared, even though they're negative emotions. Like yeah. an, what's, an, what's an anxiety-producing article? Oh, I mean, uh, today's day and age, maybe it's something about, uh, you know, the Orlando shooting, or maybe mm-hmm. it's an article that makes people angry about Trump. Okay. Uh, you know, those articles might uh, make people anger anxious, and it makes them more likely to share. Um But some negative emotions, like sadness, actually make people less likely to share. And so when we look closer, what we find is that certain emotions are high arousal or activating emotions. They fire us up. They drive us to take an action. And one of those actions is is sharing. And so uh, whether it's positive, like excitement or humor or uh, inspiration, or negative, like our our anxiety, uh, the more we feel these high arousal emotions and the more content evokes these emotions, the more likely we are to share it. Okay, next one. Uh, next is public. I feel like I'm getting a test here now. <laughs> uh, next one is public. Very simply there, it's just something's easier to see, it's easier to imitate. So I might see you wearing that nice shirt. Uh, I might go out today and buy oh, something well, similar. <laughs> but I can't see your socks unless I look really hard. And so because of that, your socks can't influence my behavior. Um, we've all heard the phrase monkey see, monkey do. But if one monkey can't see what another monkey's doing, it can't imitate it. And so it's all about how do we make things more visible. So I think this applies to, to all forms of communication, basically, you know, evoking emotions, uh, creating scarcity, yeah. uh, making something that we care about accessible to yep. others. Uh, you know, this doesn't apply to just making things contagious on YouTube, but kind of all forms of communication. <laughs> if I want to create a product that I want to sell, I have to think of these these factors. I- exactly. And, you know, people think of uh, when Contagious came out, people's first thing is it's about social media. It's about making something viral. And we have analyzed what makes things viral. But if you look, only about 7 to 10% of word of mouth is actually online. And then most, it, most is offline. Really? Yes. Like most people is offline. call each other? Or? Face-to-face. Face-to-face. Face-to-face communication. You have to see this. Yeah. I mean, think you know, think about uh, when you're at the office and someone says, oh, where are you going for lunch? And you say, blah, blah, blah. What did you do this weekend? Oh, this is what I did. Most communication is face-to-face. And so these principles aren't about online or offline. They're not about technology. They're about psychology. They're about understanding why we do what we do and using that to, to help messages propagate. And so, so uh, after Contagious came out, best-selling book, everybody talked about it. 
Did you find your? Did you did you find that companies were calling you and hiring you as a consultant to say, hey, can you make our next video go viral? We want to we want it to be a uh, hundred million views. Yeah, so I've done a little bit of that, um, but more kind of social media strategy. So you know, what kinds of things should we be posting and not posting? Or uh, like, what's more- an example? Oh, so uh, helped a, a major consumer electronics company overhaul their social media strategy, analyze everything they were posting, what was working, what was not working, to bake in the steps to their new strategy. So, what was an example of something not working, and what did you change to make it working? Oh, uh, you know, a great example of they were really all about them rather than the recipient. So they were like, look how great we are, let me tell you how great we are, let me tell you how great our stuff is, and should we talk about social currency, well, how can you make the recipient look good? How can you make them feel special that they got this, that they're getting early access to something because they're connected to you on social media that they might not get otherwise? And how did they... Um how did they then change the strategy to uh, make certain influencers kind of their brand ambassadors, I, I guess you would call it? Yeah, and it's not even influencers per se. It, it's really thinking about how we can make regular Joes and Janes more likely to talk. Um, so do, do projects like that, but also things where a company says, hey, we've got a new product or service. Help us design our marketing strategy to get it to catch on. So done a couple projects with Google recently where I have a, a number of neat products and services, uh, but they're really saying we've got great technology. How do we get it out there? So Google needed social media help. Not social media, really designing marketing strategy. Uh, and so, what, so, what did you do for them? What did, how, did, <laughs> how did it work out? Well, some of these projects are ongoing, so I can't, I can't share all the details. Um, but, uh, you know, I've helped, uh, you know, major uh, online sports networks uh, get their content shared by 45% more people, so upping their shares. Like, what did you do to get, to get that happen? Uh, but similar to what we've been talking about. Again, so thinking about, well, how do we use the steps in crafting content? So uh, people love things that signal themselves, for example. Uh, let's think, well, how do we allow each sports fan to have content that they can tap into? You know, why your team will win it all? Why the, you know, the uh, new Giants will win it all this year? Why the Redskins will win it all this year? Why the Eagles will win it all this year? Rather than focusing on one team and saying, this is the team we think is going to win, crafting content that focuses on each unique audience that uh, has their own likes or, or, and or dislikes, that they'll want to propagate that within that sub-audience or that niche um, that they might not share if, hey, the Giants are going to win and I'm a Redskins fan, but if we do that for each team, now each team can feel like, or each audience for that team, each supporter group can feel they've got something to share. I love that. It's almost like turning the NFL teams into a horoscope. (laughs) (laughs) It is, right? But breaking that content down and and thinking about um, you know, almost a little bit like narrow casting rather Mm -hmm. than broadcasting, right? Thinking about something that really has a high interest value among a smaller set of people. When we think about viral, we often want to think about everybody. But sometimes it's about saying, well, what's a small set of people that are really into this? And I think BuzzFeed actually does a decent job of this sometimes. Well, they'll say, you know, uh, the six things left-handed people love. And not everybody shares that, but left-handed people are going to share that because they're going to share it with their left-handed friends. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, All right, so Invisible. Well, okay, I do want to get to Invisible Influence, (laughs) but I still want to understand what really triggered all your fascination with this? Like, why didn't you go off, instead of going to get like an academic degree, why didn't you go off and start a company and make viral videos and God, do all yeah, that sort of stuff? Great question. So I wanted to design shoes, actually. I was really into designing sneakers, uh, and I was trying to get an internship with Nike, and I tried, and they didn't t- They didn't take me, and I tried another year, and they didn't take me, and I was doing academic research, and I liked the academic research, and uh, it was just kind of, as I looked at my options, it was what was going well. What, um, what, why did you, what kind of, what was your your vision on sneakers? Why did you want to design sneakers? Oh, you know, I just think, um, at least when I was in college, which is not so many years ago, but not not today, 
Uh, Nike was a great uh, marketing company. They did a really good job. And I think uh, Phil Knight once says this, you know, Nike's not a shoe company. We're a marketing company that happens to sell shoes. I love that. Um, And I I thought they did a really good job of understanding people uh, and really marketing with the customer in mind, not the product in mind, right? So the product is almost an afterthought in a lot of the ways they communicate their message. It's not about the product. It's about the person using it. Um, And uh, I I like design. I liked sneakers at the time, and I thought it would be a a fun career. Um, But Uh, so, so, So what do you like about uh, well a i want to get to what phil knight says for a second i like what he says because it's not about the product it's about the customer yeah um that's true in any relationship let's say a boss employee yep the boss is not going to say um you know we've got to make this deadline the boy the boss is going to kind of inspire the employee directly by saying it would be great if you can you know, come through on this and we'll, we'll, you know, there might be promotions in the future or or you'll help a lot of people or whatever. Like that's a better way to motivate rather than saying you got to make this deadline or I'm firing you. Yeah. People tend to be self-interested. We Mm -hmm. tend to be interested in things that relate to us. But too often as a speaker, uh, whether it's a boss or a company selling something, we focus on sort of why we're interested in it or the features of the thing rather than the benefits of the thing for the person doing it. So if I'm a boss trying to motivate somebody to stay late after work, you know, don't say, well, stay late after work, I'm going to fire you or even stay late after work and I'm going to pay you more. Think about what's going to fire this person up. You know, uh, the company needs your help. Uh, it's just a different way to frame that same ask, except now it, you know the company values your support in reaching this thing. Now it's more about emotion. It's more about caring. It's more about a relationship uh, rather than a transaction. And people are much more excited to engage in in those types of things. So so and and so then the other point I wanted to make because I'm just curious, and this is just again, what with sneakers? Like why sneakers? <laughs> like, I don't know. What, I, uh, what should I look for in a sneaker? Oh well, like I'm, I kind of like kinda... minimalism in spe- sneakers, like no logo. No shoelaces, if possible. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of out of the game. I used to be more into it than I than I uh, am today. But w- would you stand online? Like, there's some places around here that there's like lines around the corner whenever there's a new sneaker release, and I can never figure out why people do that. Yeah, I well, guess there's a scarcity thing there. Yeah, and part of it's a social currency to being the first person to have it, right? If there's only so many pairs, and uh, there's a great piece recently about kind of why Nike uh, encourages these sort of things, right? Why not just produce more sneakers rather than allow people to go to the secondary market and resell them? But that actually helps the brand, right? The fact that people are willing to stand in line for this signals that the brand is good. The fact that people are willing to pay more money than retail signals that it's good. And so it actually adds to the aura of the brand more than just jacking up the prices ever could. Would you be able to look, in your peak with this, would you be able to look at someone's pair of sneakers while they were wearing it and say, oh, I've got to get that? Yeah, potentially, yes. So yeah. uh, I actually, uh, my favorite pair of sneakers uh, are the Air Max 95s uh, in their original green color. Uh, and at one point in time in my life, I could tell you whether they were originals uh, or they were the re-releases that happened every few years based on what the insert, sole, uh, insert looked like or the bottom of the shoe because it was subtly different depending on what year it came out. Okay, the truth comes out. That's pretty <laughs> hardcore on sneakers. So, um, uh, all right. Invisible influence. Clearly, yes. the sneaker industry influenced you, but let's let's expand <laughs> it further. Um, again, I want to understand what what are the forces that influence me and how I can kind of cleanse myself of the neg- negative ones. Like you said, sometimes there's a positive thing. Like I want to have an expert uh, influence me on what restaurant to go to. But in I feel like that's a small percentage of the time and yep. other percentages of the time on fairly big issues. Like let's yep. say home ownership, colleges, voting. Yep. Um, you know, the political issues of the day. I'm influenced by, you know, the headlines, my neighbors, my peers, my uh, the people I work with, the people I have relationships with. 
I'm influenced by all these things that are just buffeting me all day long. Yeah. How do I say, okay, that's their opinions. I'm going to respect them and I might take them, but I have to develop my own. How do I cleanse myself? I want to be like a almost like clear in the Scientology sense. I feel I'm saying, but how do you how do you how do you clear yourself? Yeah, I think what to me it's a great question. To me, the interesting question is why do we feel the need to clear ourselves? Like, mm-hmm. why do we think that that is somehow better um, than uh, being a you know fitting in with the group and, and sure making being different sometimes? But well, well, well don't you want to just isn't information power? So like even if you do take. Um, the decisions by your influencers, even if you follow the influence, yep. don't you want to know what are the components of your decision or you don't care? I think it's good to be aware. I mean, so the main reason I wrote this book, first of all, is if we're not aware of influences, we can't, I mean, there's no way we can combat them. There's no way we right. can choose them. So, um, you know, there's uh, something uh, simple I talk about, and you asked about how we influence others also. Great technique I talk about in the book called mimicry, behavioral mimicry. The idea very sim- uh, simply is that when you mimic others, uh, that tends to create liking, trust, and facilitate social interaction. So if we're in a negotiation uh, or you're a boss and I'm an employee, um, if I subtly mimic uh, your mannerisms, your posture, uh, the way you say things, you'll like me more and it'll facilitate interaction. So I, I've... I've- heard that and I've tried that before um, A, it's very hard right? I think it's hard in general to re- keep remembering to do that, it's almost has a kind of conversation depletion so while I'm focused on mimicking you, I might yep. not be as focused on the conversation so it's a little hard. The other thing is do people ever notice when another person's mimicking them? So so first of all, actually, non-consciously we do this already, mm-hmm. so even without effort, uh, if you're sitting in a meeting, you cross your legs, other people are more likely to do it even if they're not trying to influence you. Right, but if I'm being the influencer, if I want to influence, yes. I'm going to I think the key, the key is, right, correct me if I'm wrong, first I mimic and then I start doing my own thing and I watch everybody follow what I'm doing. Oh, not necessarily, no. Mm-hmm. So let's take a negotiation, for example. Okay. Researchers find that if we mimic one another, if you're we're negotiating, I mimic you, we're five times more likely to reach a good negotiation at the end, reach a deal. Or if, if I'm a server at a restaurant and you order something, let's say you order a Cobb salad with dressing on the side and I say, okay, Cobb salad, dressing on the side, I say back to you exactly what you said, I get 70% higher tips. And so it's not that I'm trying to mimic you and then use that to do something completely different. Merely mimicking one another makes you trust me more, makes you like me more, makes me more persuasive, and sort of fatili- facilitates that social interaction. So so let's say I want the negotiation to go in my way. Yep. Um, I kind of have to like sort of sit back for a second, let you do something, and then start mimicking it. Is what it, it, like like the waiter and the customer in that example? You, you, yes, if you have if you couldn't see or hear the other person, you would have no way to, to mimic them. You have to see something they're doing first, but mm-hmm. that doesn't have to be them saying something. I mean, it can be as simple as you know them leaning back in their chair, so you lean back in your chair a, a mm-hmm. little bit. And you're right, by the way. Um, you know, as with many ways to influence others, if people are aware of it, it is less effective, right? So if people know that you're mimicking them, they may try to discount or sort of avoid that persuasive attempt. Um, but lots of research shows that people. People can use this with some impressive outcomes. So, so uh, more on negotiation. What can I do to? Let's say we're in a negotiation. I'm selling you a product or a service or my company or whatever. How can I um, essentially manipulate you into doing what I want? <laughs> I want to use the force. These are not the drones you're looking for, or they're not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> How can I do that? How can I get the force? Uh, besides mimicry? Yeah. Yeah, I think anything that makes us feel more similar in a negotiation. So even something that's not mimicry, but um, uh, you know, find something we have in common. Uh, so people often talk about, you know, oh, where'd you grow up? Or oh, 
figure out something that we have in common. It's the same underlying core idea as mimicry, but let's say you and I are chatting uh, and um, you know we're talking about where we grew up and it turns out we go to the same high school, went to the same high school. Suddenly you and I feel like, I mean, we're not brothers, right? But we're like kind of on the same team. We're like, right. oh, we have something in common. We feel more similar. And because of that, that facilitates the interaction. In some sense, it's almost like a kinship. Uh, you feel like this is part. this person's part of my tribe. They're like me. And so I can trust them more. And so anything that makes the two of you feel more similar will help that negotiation go better. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Let's say I'm going into a a job interview or a date or a negotiation. What's something I can do in advance to get myself ready for, uh, you know, finding that those common tribes that we belong to? I guess I can Google, I can search, I can, you know, do all these things that are available on the internet. Find out a little bit of background information. That that certainly helps. I mean, uh, you know, we, we were doing this interview, and I said, and this is a funny story. I'll tell it actually. So uh, I have my jacket on today, not because I enjoy wearing a jacket, because I came from something where uh, one wears a jacket but, too. But you saw a lot of photos of me wearing jackets. And, well, uh, actually, actually, I look. I was like, I actually have no idea what this guy looks like, so I should look him up because I actually don't want to be wearing the jacket. It's a little hot, and though maybe if he's a jacket guy, I should keep it on. And so I saw on one of them he had a jacket, and so I was like, oh, I should probably keep my jacket on. Right, that was a case where I literally just did a little research, not a big deal, but to make us feel a little bit more similar and and make that interaction easier. And I often do this actually when I give talks, when I give speeches, where I think a lot about what will make my audience comfortable with me, right? What will make them trust me? And and as a speaker, I don't want to be exactly the same as them because they may think, well, why did we hire this guy if he's exactly who we are? But I also don't want to be too different. There's this idea I talk about in the book about being optimally distinct, being similar but different at the same time. And so I think a lot about how can I be similar enough that they feel like I'm safe, that I'm within that realm of possibility, but different enough that they say, oh, he's innovative. He's a little bit different than we are already. So, and I think that combination is really important. So it reminds me of two things. Um, one is um, Maria Konnikova, who's been on my podcast recently. She wrote a book called The Confidence Game. Yes. And um, a lot of the basic ideas of being a con man um, are similar to ideas of, let's say, just to use the basic book, uh, Dale Carnegie's, you know, how to you know, win friends and influence people. Yeah. So which is, these are kind of like, the, the extremes of influence in some sense, but they're actually very similar and it, and really the differentiator is intent. So, you know, uh, depending on your intent and how and how you want to use influence, yeah. you're either a con man or you're winning a friend. Yeah, but I think it's interesting, and uh, some of the book, Invisible Influence, is about persuasion, but some of it's about things that are not, a, not persuasive at all. So let's think about when we're at the gym, for example. If there's someone running on the treadmill next to us, we work out harder than we would if there wasn't someone running there. Now, is that person trying to persuade us? Not at all. They could care less that we're at the gym, yet the mere fact that they're there, there's a social presence, makes us work out harder. So, so, so particularly, I noticed Vama at the gym on the treadmill, and there's a woman next to me. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I have to go faster than that person, <laughs> and I never win. They, they're always faster than me, yeah. but I'm like trying really hard. But that's just me being screwed up a little bit. But what's the actual uh, reason that that happens? Yeah, it's called social facilitation, mm. uh, and so it's not only people that do this; animals do this too. So in general, when people are not or animals are not by themselves, they're either doing something with others or others are watching them. Uh, it can facilitate action. It can facilitate a dominant response. And so as long as the thing we're doing is something we've done before 
before were pretty good at, like running on a treadmill uh, or like doing simple math problems, let's say. Uh, having others around can make us do it faster. Some one early research, for example, looked at cyclists and looked at cyclists that were going around a track. And they looked at when those cyclists biked alone versus when they biked with someone else. And they found when people biked with someone else, they biked about 20 to 30 seconds a mile faster, merely because someone else was there. So, and I like I like to turn all of these into strategies that I can use or the, or the person yeah. listening to this can use. So if I go to the gym and I want to work out as hard as possible, should I basically go on the treadmill next to somebody who looks healthy and, and turn it on and, and I'm off to the races? I think the first thing I would say is never exercise alone. So, you know, if you're sitting there going, uh, you know, I could do push-ups at home or I could do them at the gym, go to the gym. Go into the gym. It'll help you do more push-ups than you would have done at home merely because there are other people there. Oh, God damn it. I've been doing push-ups at home. <laughs> now I'm going to have to actually socialize with people. Uh, or, you know, pick a time when you think uh, more people are going to be around when you go running. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and as you said, right, when I'm at the gym, don't work out in a room alone. Work out in a room with other people. And it's not just running. It's any sort of exercise. But in a case when we're already pretty good at something already, Others will get our competitive juices flowing. But I remember in the, in the book also, you say sometimes um, the fact that others are doing something will make us perform worse. Yes. And I guess it's when it's more... So running on a treadmill is relatively easy. We all know how to do it. You just turn the treadmill on and you start running. Yeah. But if it's, um, I don't know... Oh, parallel noticed, parking. Uh, parallel parking. Yeah. I noticed this with, um, with games. So I'm really into games like chess or checkers yep. or cards or whatever. Like my daughters who they're up against a formidable force. I never yeah. let them win. Uh, they will refuse to play with me or, yeah. they, put, or they don't want to play at all yeah. because I think it's too hard. Yes. And so they don't want to deal with defeat. Well, this is an easy first take I think the first take here is let your daughter win. I think that would no, be... No, I don't know. That's, I don't do that. I never let anybody uh, win. Um, uh, my grandfather never let anybody either win. So I, I understand that loud and clear. But but you're right. So who we're comparing ourselves to matter. And this is where we get a little bit into the more complicated uh, roles that influence play. But if we're too far behind, right, if that person's much better than we are, then we might actually give up. Uh, and so some, Why is uh, that? Uh, well, we feel like we can't close the gap. So recently, some researchers looked at online courses, MOOCs, for example, and there's a lot of peer grading in MOOCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not only does the instructor maybe grade you, but there's so many people, people grade one another, helps them get better, learn how to grade, uh, and also helps them see others' assignments. People exposed to peak performers, somebody who's, let's say, not very good at whatever it is, exposed to someone who wrote a really good essay, they're actually more likely to drop out of the course. Because Mm. part of what they do is they say, wow, this is what other people are doing? That person's so much better than me. There's no way I'm going to close the gap. So so again, a strategy here that I would want to do is seek out like what I would recommend is seek out the peak performers, knowing that your competitors are m- likely to drop out for this kind of social psychology reason, and you'll have more attention put on you by the peak performer. Uh, I'd say pick someone that's slightly ahead of you. When we're trying to pick a social comparison, pick someone who's better than you, but just by a little bit. So mm. we did a big analysis of NBA basketball games, looking at thousands of NBA basketball games and looking at the score at halftime and the score at the end of the game. Uh, and what we found is, not surprisingly, winning teams at halftime, you're up at halftime, you're more likely to win. The more points you are ahead at halftime, the more likely you are to win. But there was one place that being behind was actually good, and that was being behind by just one point. And so, so teams I- that. Oh, sorry. Just, go ahead. Uh, teams that were behind by one point were actually more likely to win than teams that were ahead by one point. Now, teams down by 20 points weren't, but teams down by just one, they're so close they can almost taste it. And so they come out of the locker room fired up, they work harder. So that's, in your words, 
Pick someone who's just a little better than you, not someone who's so far better than you, because if they're so far better, you feel like there's no way you can close that gap. So, um, and I'm just curious, did you have you studied gambling in this? So that uh, uh, are the odds skewed against the per- the team that's one point behind at halftime? You know, you can bet throughout the game. Yes. So uh, do the odds get skewed against the team that's one point as, behind as at halftime? As far as I can tell, this has not been incorporated in gambling. So somebody, one of your listeners, uh, I just made you a whole bunch of money. Right. Uh, send me We're a check. Buy, buy me dinner sometime if I end up being right. Um, uh, but if you look in general, some of these behavioral biases have just not been taken into account when you think about sort of betting lines, when you think about financial markets, when you think about things that are run in a traditionally economic way. People often don't understand the subtle biases that shape our behavior, and they don't incorporate them in the in the odds. Well, you know, another thing that this reminds me of, and, and you don't mention it in the book, but it's a kind of a common phenomenon throughout history, is that oftentimes... Many inventions are discovered simultaneously at different parts of the world by people who have no communication with each other completely differently. And um, it's what Stephen Johnson calls the adjacent possible in all his books on the history of ideas. Okay. And so it reminds me of that where what you're what you're looking for is to become the adjacent. So so like a great example is Isaac Newton and, and Leibniz both coming up with calculus. Okay. Well, all the foundations of calculus were there 10 years earlier. So yep. it was natural that two people could potentially invent it at the same time because it was the adjacent possible to what was already there in mathematics. Yeah. And so what you're looking for is to become the adjacent possible to what is the social or societal norm, but be just a little bit different, a little bit better, and that's how you'll kind of maximize influence in your in the community you're trying to influence. S- certainly, and I, I, I'd never so heard that term. speak language, but... But have your own unique vision on it. Yeah, and I love that term, the adjacent possible, and I'm actually going to tweak it slightly. Um, Some research we've done shows the adjacent is popular. So if you look at what's going to become popular next, it actually tends to be things that are similar but different for what's been popular already. So if you look at baby names, for example, uh, let's say Jacob is a really popular name this year. Um, Jacob is not necessarily going to be popular next year, but other J names are more likely to be popular. So Jason and John, other names, because people have heard Jacob more often, it makes that name sound more familiar. They like it more, but they also don't want to name their child exactly the same thing. And so it becomes popular next, uh, whether we think about baby names, we think about music, we think about all sorts of domains, is things that are similar but different. Right? So let, let's think about that, because you mentioned that in the book, particularly with names, like you mentioned after Katrina, nobody was naming their kid Katrina, obviously, but there were a lot of K names the next yep. year. A statistically significant number of babies were born K with K. Names. Yeah. And so how can we make use of that? Like, let's say I'm trying to pick... Um, I don't know, the next music that's going to be popular or the next music. Let's say I'm a musician. I want to work on the next music that's popular. Yeah. What, what should I start looking at? Like, how can I start researching or discovering this? Yeah. So I would think about, you know, one, how can I pick that thing? But also, two, how can I frame my thing that way? So if I'm launching a company or I'm launching a business, how can I make it seem similar but different at, at the same time? It's not just the product itself. It's how we frame that that product. So an example with the product itself, uh, Chobani's done a great job of this. They weren't... Greek yogurt. Greek yogurt, right? They did a great job of making it seem similar but different. Uh, TiVo did the same thing. The digital video recorder seems like a video recorder, but it's digital, a little bit different. Um, and so when we're thinking about how to frame our ideas, frame them as similar but different. When we're trying to pick new ideas or things to design, think about, well, what's out there already, uh, and how could we be a little different? Uh, and sometimes we see this happen in, in bad ways. So Fifty Shades of Grey becomes popular, or uh, what was that vampire movie called? Um, the, the vampire movies, Twilight. Twilight and yeah. so everybody comes out now with vampire books. The next version of the books are all vampire books. But in thinking about it, we can't be exactly the same as what's Including, been Including, by the way, Fifty Shades of Grey was originally yes, Twilight fan fiction. fiction. Yeah. But, uh, but moving it a little bit forward, right? Thinking about what is similar enough to be comfortable and familiar, but different enough to move things forward and be different from what's come before. 
Okay, so so more on influence. What's another What's another factor? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about the power of peers uh, mm-hmm. to to motivate us. Um, to motivate us, but also you mentioned in the book. Um, Sometimes peers can unmotivate us because we don't want to be like everyone else. So yeah. when, where's the line where peers are motivating us as opposed to not motivating us? Yeah. I'll give you an example, by the way. So like 20 years ago, I was working on a project with a company called SRC. And what they would do, companies would come to them with like, let's say, a ski jacket and say, make the ski jacket popular. And they would give this ski, they would go to basically... Harlem and yep. give the ski jacket to, yeah. um, you know, and hip hop culture was exploding at that yep. time. They would give the ski ski jacket to everyone in Harlem, like for free and not everyone, but like a lot of kids. And then the ski jacket would get more popular among yeah. kids in like middle America. Yep. Uh, Cause then, you know, rappers would start wearing it and, and so on. Yeah. So, so is that something similar where I'm looking for a peer group somehow to influence me to, to do something? Yeah, so I think, and you're you're very right to think about applications here. There's uh, two things to be aware of in peers to avoid, uh, and two things to choose based on. So, uh, to avoid, for example, someone as we talked about, much better than us, too far better than us, we're going to get demotivated. But also, if the task is really complicated, so if we, as we talked about, parallel parking or multitasking, for example, at the office, uh, people love open floor plans for the office. Particularly when we're doing complicated things, though, others actually make it more difficult for us to do those things. Uh, the 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 stress and arousal that can increase Increase performance in some cases. Uh, when we're talking about a domain that we're actually not good at already, they can decrease performance. And so you want to do things alone when they're complicated things or things you're not very good at already. On the positive side, though, when we're trying to use peers to help us, uh, pick domains where that person is just a little bit ahead of us. And the task that we're thinking about is something simple or easy to do. Those are cases where peers help rather than hurt. Like, like what? Oh, help rather than hurt? Yeah. yeah, so like we talked about running, for example. That's something where we all know how to run. We may not be fastest runner in the world, but that's an easy thing that we're, we're good at already. Doing simple multiplication problems, tying our own shoelaces. Those are all things, you know, tying our own shoelaces compared to tying a bow tie. Our shoelaces are something we're good at. Others would help us do it faster. Tying a bow tie, we're not so good at. Others would make us do it worse or slower than we would otherwise. So so I would think in, in many cases, I want to get better at something. I want to just get the best in the world to teach me um, how to get better at something. And you're saying... But if maybe if the best in the world isn't there to train me, find someone who's slightly better and just try to keep up with them, and that will do almost almost as good a job. Or it would be interesting to see actually if the comparison of how much better I get going with somebody uh, adjacently popular as yeah. opposed to the best in the world. If I'm motivated to get better. Yeah, but but I think the question is not just learning, as we've talked about already. And learning is very powerful, by the way. If you can learn from the best in the world at anything, mm-hmm. there's no reason not to. Um, but uh, that can also be demotivating. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they're, they're the best in the world. We're just, uh, I'm just me. Uh, you know, uh, if I saw the best in the world, I'd be like, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be uh, that good at this thing. And so I might, I might actually give up. Uh, and so I think picking proximal, what I call proximal peers or peers that are nearby uh, is a much safer way to ensure that we get motivated rather than demotivated. And you had a fascinating story in the book, um, which I did not know about. Uh, basically, both Snooky and the situation from the Jersey Shore were paid by, um, I forget if you said Armani, what was the brand yeah. that paid them to not wear their yeah. clothes? So, uh, two stories. They're actually separate brands, but uh, Snooky gets a free handbag in the mail. That makes sense. Product placement. Maybe they're hoping she wears it. She gets a free Gucci bag in the mail, but it's not uh, from Gucci. It's from one of their competitors. That's uh, funny. And uh, Mike, the situation, Sorrentino uh, of the Ab fame, whatever, uh, from Jersey Shore, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch sends him a letter saying, hey, we're willing to pay you money. Again, you'd think that to wear their clothes. He's actually, their Abercrombie is offering to pay him not to 
to wear their clothes. Uh, and was the reason, it significant money? Like, do you know how much money was? No, I don't remember off the top. It wasn't nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea, very simply, there is is we don't just do things for what they do. We also care what they may mean, what they signal about us to, to others. And so in this case, uh, Abercrombie saying, well, if, if Mike the Situation's wearing this stuff, it might bring along a whole set of consumers that our target consumer might not want to be associated with. And the fact that they're doing this might actually lead those target consumers to avoid the brand. Uh, and so often I think, you know, we think a lot about what a product does, what its functional value, clothes keep us warm, a car gets us from A to B. But also, what do those things signal about us? What do they communicate about our social groups or who we are? And how does that meaning affect whether we adopt something or abandon it? Uh, This often happens with music, for example. An indie band uh, becomes popular. Everybody starts saying who liked it earlier. Oh, I like their older stuff. Part of what they're trying to do is signal, well, I was there first, right? I'm not like all these, uh, you know, Johnny come lately as I was the first person to listen to this band. But once it's popular, it's no longer a good signal of identity. So they abandon it and avoid move on to something else. I thought that was a fascinating chapter where you talked about basically how bands could become popular. And you basically say Britney Spears, it was almost, not that it was quite random because obviously yeah. she's had a, a career into her entire life to build up to where she was, whether yeah. you like her or not, yes. you know, as you point out. But um, to some extent, there was not that much difference between, let's say, someone like Britney Spears who succeeded versus someone who failed. It just depends on who the first people were who started getting the word out and how quickly it spread from those people and a lot of a lot of factors happen to make someone popular and ha- if i want to let's say i'm a writer yeah. and i want my books to be popular yeah. um what are some steps i can take to be make sure i'm one of the lucky ones yeah. So so first of all, if I was trying to get something to catch on, um, I think the steps from Contagious, you, you mentioned steps, but one with one P, I'd say steps with two Ps. Uh, think about those steps, right? How we can make those early readers feel special, smart, and in the know. Uh, how we can tell emotion-inducing stories so people are encouraged to share them. Uh, how we can, you know, when we came out with Contagious, we built a cover that was actually very bright. We wanted to make sure it was easier to see, easier to imitate. And so really applying those principles to both the writing uh, and the packaging makes it more likely to be shared. And, and that's Is that true? Like, did do you know that? Like, for instance, on this cover, yeah. uh, you were mentioning earlier, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, you've got this, pr- uh, what do you call it? Like a 3D Lenticular, going. actually, yeah. yeah. So uh, we were talking about this before the show started. Uh, the cover for Invisible Influence, this is a reason to pick up the physical book, not just look at it online, uh, is actually an animated cover. So depending on the angle you look at it, it shows one thing or another. And we did that particularly because we wanted to show that Influence is often invisible. Um, you know, you may not see it at first glance. You have to look underneath to be able to see it. So it's one of these things. It's called a lenticular. Uh, you may remember this from your childhood. For me, it was you know a little ruler that had penguins on it, and depending on the angle you looked at, they were either looking right or left. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover you either see invisible influence or you see. Uh, I think it says uh, everyone's reading it, uh, which is sort of the hidden message underneath. And you have to look at it from the right angle to see the hidden message. And so, so this also makes you stand out a little bit. It's like you're similar to other books in the bookstore, but you're a little different. And and I think, I mean, a cover, uh, you know, authors uh, spend a lot of time on covers. I'm no, no different than that. But I think part of what you want to think of is, well, what's a cover that carries my message? You know, how can how can the cover be my soundbite? How can it be my Trojan horse? Uh, if people understood one thing in the book, they could get it from the cover. And that's when I think uh, covers really do a good job. Well, what other, c- considering that this book is about influence and your last book was about contagious, what other strategies are you using to market this book? <laughs> I don't want to give them all away. One is being on, on your show, right? I mean, uh, right, right here. I'm well, I do think <laughs> The podcast tour is much better than the book tour. Uh, it like is. the book tour, you got to travel all around. <laughs> you hit one one thousandth of the readers. Yep. The, the the podcast tour, you're hitting much more. I yeah. think in general, you should go on as many podcasts as possible, <laughs> not just mine. So. One thing we did uh, with Contagious, and I think we're doing this with Invisible Influence as well. Uh, sometimes people give away a book. Uh, so they say, hey, we're going to email 40, 400 people. If they're interested, these are influential people in the industry and media. We'll give them a book. We didn't just give them one book. We gave them two books. 
And we said, hey, one of these is for you. One of these is for a friend. I love that. Pass it on to someone else. Um, and what I think is really clever about that is as good as my publisher may be or I may be in terms of guessing who's going to like this book, you know who's better than us? Those individual people, right? Those individual people are going to look in their social network and they're going to say, huh, who in my network would like the second copy? I feel bad about throwing it away. I'm going to give this to John or Susan or Dan who might like this book. And so taking advantage of the power of word of mouth, word of mouth is not just trusted more than advertising. It's also more targeted. It almost goes through a social network kind of like a searchlight to find their person or people that might find that information, or in this case, that book most relevant. And so giving away too encourages the people you give it to to become advocates and almost to become a channel for your message. And also it's like a little extra favor than than normal. It's almost like you're making an assumption that they're going to like it and want to give away the other book. So they, they, they're they not going to want to necessarily, it's like they're psychologically going to say, oh, this person you know, is somehow investing extra yeah. in me. Well, one, you are if you're giving them two books. Um, but but also you're saying, look, you know, you can give something to someone else for free, which makes you look good for sharing it, right? At least if the book is good. Uh, but if the book's good and you gave them a free copy, they're going to like you, right? Just like you bring a friend with you to the VIP line at uh, the club or a game or something like that. Your friend's like, oh, look at you. You're special. You got this. Uh, same thing with giving away too. It, it turns those customers into advocates, but it does it in a way that makes them feel special. Okay, what's another technique? Uh, that we've done with the book? Yeah. Ah, so uh, so we built the cover of, of uh, Contagious to be very colorful. Um, we sort of talked about that with in- Invisible Influence as well, making it more public. Uh, and also thought a lot about the stories that would travel with the book. Um, so really trying to break it down. So, uh, and I did a very, thought we did a, good job of this with Contagious, thinking about like statistics that carry the message of the book. So we talked about uh, the fact that only 7 to 10% of word of mouth is online. You hear that number, it's much lower than you might think. Uh, you remember that because it's an important number. It's different than you might have expected. But you're also going to tell someone else that number because it makes you look smart. And along the way, the book gets to come along for the ride. The point that it's not just about the technology, it's it's also about the psychology of sharing in the first place. Well, let, me, let me ask you how you take advantage of that. So Let's say, again, you write a book or yeah. you make a video or you, uh, I don't know, do anything. Yeah. How do you get people talking about you offline as opposed to just sh- hitting the Facebook share button online? Well, but it's the same, right? So it's not like we only care about looking good online, but we don't care about looking good offline. Sure, online we care about looking good. And what's neat, we've actually found in our research that online we have more time to construct and refine what to say. Online is asynchronous communication. Uh, Someone sends us something, we can wait a while before we respond. And so it turns out about 70% uh, of Facebook messages are actually censored, not by the government, self-censored. We censor them ourselves to think about the most clever thing to say or the best thing to write. Uh, It's no one wonder then that most social media posts are positive. You know, look at me, I'm on vacation. Look at me, I met the celebrity. Not look at me, I'm at the office working on an Excel spreadsheet, right? Because that wouldn't make us look very good. Uh, offline, though, we don't have as much time to construct and refine what to say. So offline, those triggers really matter a lot. And so we still care about how we look to others, but we don't always have the time to do it. Offline, we talk a lot more about the weather or you know, what we're doing this weekend, not because they're the most exciting things, but because we're thinking about them. So... Earlier in the interview, you mentioned your grandfather's strategy was to not let you win. <laughs> and, and I'm just curious, why did you mention your grandfather? Why not your father or mother? Oh, uh, I think my parents would let me. Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me win. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't not let me win. They would, uh, they might, they would let, my grandfather just never let us win. It's funny, my, me and my cousin joke about this all the time. Like, we'd play racquetball with him or we'd play shuffleboard and he would just destroy us and he'd, you know. He would just be hardcore <laughs> and say, you got to learn the hard way. Old school, yeah. the greatest generation. <laughs> so, Definitely. but your parents were just, where did, where did you grow up? Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C.? Yeah. So, so to some extent, this idea of influence 
Um, you know, I've seen, of course, House of Cards. Yeah. And so this idea of influence is pervasive in Washington, D.C. Like, how do you, how, how do people get, you know, ideas across that could potentially change a nation? What I think is so challenging uh, in the current political climate is the role of that. We talked about identity signaling, what something communicates, and how that shapes the discourse. So I was working recently with a, a group that wanted to get clean energy, so solar power, wind power, to catch on among conservatives. Uh, and at least if you look at the data, conservatives should like clean energy. Why? Because it's good for the, uh, it's, it's good for the pocket doesn't cost a lot, reduces uh, reliance on foreign oil, which uh, helps national security, allows people to be more independent of government, smaller government rather than big government, all things conservatives should like. Uh, and if you ask conservatives, well, why don't they support clean energy? One politician said it really nicely. He said, well, Al Gore supports clean energy. And if Al Gore is something Al Gore likes, it's probably not for me. And I think the challenge there is both Republicans and Democrats as well really see these things as, as not just issues that have answers to them, but as signals of, of identity. Uh, is this a one-party signal or is this the opposite party signal? Does this suggest I'm a conservative or suggest I'm a liberal? And uh, a colleague of mine did some very nice research looking at this, looking at the role that uh, you know politics uh, have, whether it's parties or policies that drive decisions. So they gave people like a welfare policy and say, do you support this policy? And they told some people that Democrats support it and they told other people Republicans Republicans supported it. Well, when Democrats were told that Democrats supported it, they thought it was great. When they were told Republicans supported it, they thought it was terrible, and vice versa for uh, Republicans. And so it's not just issues are issues. They're not just, you know, this is about the, the facts. It's really about what does it say about you? What does it signal about you to say, I support this welfare cause or I don't, or I support clean energy or I don't? And I think that's really challenging in the current political client. It's almost like uh, sports teams, like the Red Sox versus the Yankees, rather than two groups that are trying to work towards a common goal. So it's interesting, again, becoming aware of what are the components of influence can help you define your message when you're trying to get something across that you want to influence. So let's say you're a Republican and you want to, um, and you believe in, let's say, the the almost the, the Al Gore definition of yep. cl clean environment, you can basically say something like, you know, this is not just an Al Gore issue, or you could say Al Gore was wrong. This is the actual way to do it, and it's important. So then you could kind of make it your own issue. Yeah, so I love the two strategies you just talked about there. So one was bumping up a level of categorization. It's not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's a human issue, right? So now it's something that covers both of those groups. It's categorized more broadly. And the other is, is saying, look, Al Gore got it wrong. This is the reason we should do it. But it's owning that issue in your own language. Right. Uh, and, and you often see sort of uh, traditionally marginalized groups taking terms that are often slurs and kind of owning them themselves, repurposing them uh, for, their, for their own uh, group and, and taking ownership of them. And so I think you're right. It's really important, whether in the political discourse or in, in other cases, to think about how do we move beyond one group versus another and make it a higher level categorization? It's, it also happens with brands. Uh, this happens all the time, right? If something signals, takes on a bad signal, no one's going to want it anymore. So as a brand, you have to think, well, how do I manage this? Right? How do I make sure to bring in you know, the older folks and the younger folks? Facebook has had a big challenge with this. It was really cool when it started, but once your parents or grandparents are on Facebook, it's not as cool anymore to be on Facebook. Now the young folks want to be on Snapchat or Yik Yak or whatever the new thing is partly because they have options that Facebook doesn't, but partly because it signals something about them. And so you see brands, you know, smart brands do things like sub-branding. If you look at uh, Toyota, for example, they don't just say we make Toyota, they say we make Lexus and we make Scion. And what that allows is, you know, you, let's say you hit it big, you love the Toyota camera, you hit it big, you want to buy a nice car. Um, now you can go buy something that's in the Toyota family, but has a different signal associated with it. Or, you know, you're a young kid and you want a cool car, but you don't want your parents are driving, you can buy a Scion and that still keeps them in the Toyota family. Family without buying exactly the same make. 
I think people underestimate how important this is as a, as a business strategy. So for instance, when HBO and Showtime were going head to head against each other in the 80s, literally selling door to door, uh, what did HBO do? They created Cinemax. So now they're selling two things versus Showtime's one thing. Uh. So p- people want to buy a package. Yeah. Um, but so it's interesting. So so what's next? What's the? I feel like you did Contagious Influence. Is there Persuasion next, or what's uh, what's know, the next book? What uh, are you working on? Uh, <laughs> no- science fiction novel uh-huh. where somebody understands all these techniques and does massive mind control over society. <laughs> it's actually going to be a coloring book uh, about four kids in Northwest Kentucky in the 1920s. I like uh, it. I'll buy it. Uh, you just influenced me. Uh, um, you know, uh, right now I'm, I'm excited about this book, uh, thinking about this book, uh, talking about this book, always doing ongoing research. Uh, so doing a lot of research on language uh, and language in both persuasion and language and word of mouth. So understanding uh, how language shapes what we share as well as how we react to things. Um, so lots of research on influence, lots of research on word of mouth. I think as an author, it's always tough, you know, uh, when a book does decently, decently well, like Contagious done, people want you to come out with a sequel. They want you to come out with Contagious-er. But you're sitting there going, oh, I don't know, would people really want Contagious-er? Do you want something different? And so, um, you know, as as a scientist, but also a writer, I think it's always important to find something new and something interesting and probably has something in common, otherwise you wouldn't find it interesting, but something interesting enough to to give your attention a, a new kind of look. Well, Invisible Influence by Jonah Berger, and I, I really think there's two sides that make this a super fascinating book. One is to understand what are the components that we each are influenced so we can understand them better and understand our decisions better, whether they're good or bad. And the other thing is, I think, is how to influ- how to take advantage of it to influence people. Like if I have an idea, or if I write something, or if I do something, I want it to be out there. I wanted to influence people. So, so understanding what goes into influence as in the ways you've studied it uh, is fascinating to me. I, it was a great read. So, so thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you so and much. Thank you I for coming it. on uh, the show, the James Aldridge show. Yeah, uh, good. I appreciate you having me. Excellent. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know, and you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.